arranged to be the agents of change To fight the power, to be the difference If you stand up for people speaking the truth You might be a change agent too Hey everybody, welcome to the Change Agents Comics and Social Issues Podcast Where we'll be exploring graphic novels that have something to say Brought to you by Change Agents from Renegades Arts Entertainment. Coming out exclusively on Comixology in January. Fight the power. Be the difference. I'm James Davidge, and I'm joined today by... Stephanie Chan of Foam Armory and Smash Pages Comic News. Hello, everybody. Jason Memmel of Sage Theatre and the Penciltown Podcast. Hey, everybody. Karen Mills of the Alberta Advantage and the Format Guardian podcasts. Hello, folks. And Ian McIntosh of the Circuit 42 podcast. Hello. Every episode, we discuss a notable work of comic literature as we consider its artistic merit and its ability to address our social concerns. And today, we're talking about X-Men, God Loves, Man Kills by Chris Claremont and Brent Anderson which was released in 1982 by Marvel Comics. Full disclosure, I was more of a DC guy as a kid as opposed to Marvel. My first X-Men comics were beautiful reprint editions on what was called Baxter paper of the classic Roy Thomas and Neil Adams run because, believe it or not, I was a big fan of, you guessed it, Roy Thomas, who in the early 80s, was writing two awesome DC titles, All-Star Squadron and Captain Carrot and his amazing zoo crew. Soon after, I picked up the Dark Phoenix saga and then got into reading the monthly X-Men series around issue 201. At about that time, a friend showed me his copy of X-Men God Loves, Man Kills that had come out a few years earlier. It was a big deal because it was an original graphic novel that hadn't been previously released as a monthly comic book, a rarity back then. I never got to read my friend's copy. In fact, I didn't read God Loves Man Kills until years later, when I took it out from the library shortly after learning it had been the inspiration for the second X-Men movie, aka X2. So that's kind of my uh, connection to, uh, to, to the graphic novel. Um, uh, I just now want to hear from all of our guests um, about their relationship with the X-Men and with the graphic novel X-Men God Loves Man Kills. And I want to welcome um, our new guest here uh, from Circuit 42, Ian. Uh, can you uh, share with us a bit of your history? Um, definitely. I Oddly enough, I grew up more, um, like my first two comics I had were Captain America and Gru, but eventually as I got older, when I got, well, not older as relative, but I was nine years old, I got into X-Men. And then I kept hearing about Chris Claremont. And so I decided, you know, I've, I need to check this out. So I read some random issues I read like classic X-Men as a kid, but I didn't necessarily read God Loves Man Kills till I was, I would say about 20, about 20 or 21. And when I read it, I'm like, this is, everyone talked about how, how it was very controversial. It was very different from the other, a lot of the other X-Men books. And I was like, Oh, how big of a difference could that be? And then I actually read it and I'm like, okay, this is shocking today. Let alone, uh, in 1982 when it came out and it kind of really like i'd read a lot of i'd read indie books i read mouse prior to uh prior to reading that but 
seeing it in the comic published by the big two and seeing a lot of the topics they deal with dealing with uh dealing with uh, religious doing persecution um dealing with racism i mean they're and they're not subtle about it at all in this book to actually to the book's strength because it doesn't try to sugarcoat anything then throughout the book um that was really my first impression was wow you could actually do this with a superhero comic from the big two very cool thanks well we look forward to hearing more about that um karen care to share your uh connection to to this graphic novel Okay. Um, yeah, James, uh, pretty similar to your story. Actually, I was more of a DC person growing up in terms of actual comics. I think that just came from my dad and to, to uh, like the current DC, like from the 80s and 90s more. I think he had good memories of Marvel in the 60s, but he didn't really like the direction they went, I guess, the the more realistic stuff that uh, we're just talking about. But um, yeah, I was... I guess I would still be an X-Men fan. I was the right age to watch the animated series and then was excited when the movies started coming out because they were some of the first, like, you know, respectable uh, superhero movies instead of just goofy ones. So it was like that and Spider-Man. So X2 was, yeah, a pretty big deal in terms of being just like a well-received popular movie and also uh, touching on a lot of the issues that we're probably going to almost certainly talking about uh, in this episode. So. All right. Thank you. Uh, Jason. You know, I think I came across this book in a, um, a wee book in, in Kensington, way back when those stores still existed in Kensington. Yeah, they um, had the cats. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. The, these cats that were just like sitting, I think they were sitting on top of books. Um, and yeah, so I bought this. I, uh, if anybody's watching this uh, uh, visually later on, I, I bought this ratty copy that's got a 350 price tag on it. Um, you know, we book in. Um, I think like, so like, I was definitely a Marvel guy growing up. Like I definitely got into the X-Men and, uh, and basically all of those characters. Um, uh, and so, but I think my approach to this, by the time I read it, I was probably in my mid or late twenties. And, uh, by that point I'd already read a lot of like other stuff we've even talked about in this podcast, like mouse and, um, you know, other books like Watchmen and stuff. So, so I think like I I didn't I didn't find it very powerful, but that's because I think I, I I read it after a lot of work that also came after this graphic novel, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, totally. So even in this reread, there were there was some stuff that I found kind of cringy, but I was like, I have to remember when this was written and and the context of the 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 culture and the comics industry around then and like what to me seems like heavy-handed or or uh, uh, less interesting now was like revolutionary when it came out. All right, yeah, great. Thanks, Jason. Um, Stephanie. Uh, let's see, growing up, I would say I was good, good chunk DC, good chunk Marvel, and then mixing a little bit of independence here and there. So um, I, was, I had no real uh, bias per se on what I was reading, but I did definitely like superheroes much more at the time. And um, like Jason, I also read a lot of more controversial books well before I read uh, God Loves Man Kills. I don't think I read it till later high school, I would guess. I'm not even sure when I read it exactly. And, and by then, I would say it was probably, in a way, less shocking, because I already had read V for Vendetta and 
whatever. Like I read V for Vendetta, I think when I was nine years old, to give you a concept. <laughs> so so, um, so, th- so this, this came along much later, but at the same time, I still found it shocking because of all the X-Men stuff I've read previously. And a lot of the X-Men monthly series constantly kept up with the, the muty thing and the bigotry thing, but not to the degree of this book from the, the early eighties. And that opening scene with the two children, like that was shocking to me that they would actually show that not just in the comic book, but in an X-Men comic book. Like I didn't see that coming because I didn't really know the history of this book when I read it. So that, that, that was like, Oh, they, they actually show this stuff in an X-Men comic. Like that was like mind blowing for me. Um, anyway, um, that's, that's where this book kind of fits in and everything. And, um, it's so funny that after you read it and, um, I think Jason said this too. It's like you can you can see where future comics were like pulling from that as well, sort of thing. And it just felt like like this book was like an everyone always talks about how revolutionary Watchmen and uh, Dark Knight was, but honestly, like this was one of them too. Okay, well, thanks, uh, thanks everyone, thanks Stephanie. Um, all right, we're just going to jump into a a book summary before we uh, dig deeper into. Uh this uh this title um so uh be aware uh this is your spoiler warning uh we'll be getting into it all uh including and uh, as i like to do almost right to the ending so um so in short the x-men encounter anti-mutant persecution from religious intolerance stoked by reverend striker that's basically what happens um the paramilitaristic purifiers kidnap professor x cyclops and storm leaving the group without their leadership. A relatively small team consisting of Wolverine, Kitty Pride, Colossus, Nightcrawler, and Ileana are soon aided by their traditional nemesis Magneto, and they eventually confront Reverend Stryker and his purifiers at a large anti-mutant sermon. Kitty Pride bravely puts herself between her fellow X-Men and Reverend Stryker, who is prepared to shoot her. But before he can pull the trigger, Stryker is shot in the shoulder by a nearby police officer who could not let the Reverend shoot a young girl. The X-Men all return to their mansion school. Magneto and Professor X have one last conversation around differing socio-political tactics. Wolverine makes a smart-ass comment, and we get to see the team in civilian clothes. Classic. So, um, uh, jumping from that... And just in general, I think lots of you have teased onto things you'd like to talk about. What about this story um, stands out to you? And um, maybe I'll, uh, I'll I'll throw this one out at Jason first. Oh man, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Well, I mean, what, one interesting thing I think that your your synopsis actually didn't cover yeah. with how uh, most of the story involves, or a big part of the story involves that. Um, uh, Professor X basically being uh, brainwashed. Yes, by that is big. Uh, by Reverend Stryker and how how that felt. Um, how like how much that felt like it was a uh, uh, like it, v- very much like a crisis of conscience for the X Men about like how they were going to deal with this problem when the, when their own mentor was affected. Um, so I think that was kind of a a big like I think that you you also alluded to this in some of your notes. Mm-hmm. Is like the the really like fever dream stuff uh, that Xavier's having. Um, uh, that stuff I thought was really really compelling, and I think um, 
Uh, all, I mean, just from a craftsmanship perspective, you can kind of tell that Claremont and Anderson are, are stretching themselves in terms of comics a little bit more here because they know they've got a bit more space and time uh, versus like a, a monthly comic where they know they've only got so many pages. Um, so yeah, I think those are some, maybe some standout things is that I, I think just stylistically, you can tell that they're spending, they can go a little weirder um, and go a little more intense. Um, uh, and I think uh, the, the, other, the other kind of interesting thing I think is that um, how much we see the interaction between quote unquote normal humans and uh, their opinion of things as a sort of a, a barometer for the, for the oppression that's happening. And I think this, this was interesting because you had like cops and, and civilians and stuff kind of saying things like, oh, I agree with this. Or actually maybe I don't agree with this. Um, versus it just, just being the banter between two superheroes or between uh, um, villains and heroes and stuff like that. Yeah, well, and I'll just I'll jump on that, Jason, because because the thing that stood out to me just as far as visually and storytelling wise was when Professor X is in that fever dream and he's in an isolation tank. And I found that even interesting from a modern torture perspective, but also just how he sees he, he's crucified and he sees all of his X-Men as demons. Um, I, that was just powerful imagery. I'd say powerful imagery now and just kind of showing, as you say, this, 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 this ability they, could to, they, they had to, uh, to stretch their storytelling beyond a, a typical 23 pages. Um, yeah. Is there anyone else who wants to chuck in now, or, will I, or should I call on someone here? Um, um, yeah, yeah. One of the big things I wanted to talk about, because you, the, the, you both mentioned the hallucination scene, yeah. and um, I think a lot of it really comes down to the aesthetics by Steve Olaf. Because if I remember, I could be wrong, but Steve Olaf um, he was one of the first digital colors because he did this and he did the American colorized, the American version release of Akira. Oh, wow. And oh, that's this, um, it's because of that early kind of experimental style that he has. And because of the fact that we're seeing digital artwork long before that was really a standard at all in comic books, that um, it kind of leads to that weird aesthetic. And in many ways, I think it brings out that dark, that kind of off tone, especially in the hallucination scene. Yeah, I remember it, was, it had a, a powerful red. It, yeah, that's it, worth pointing out there. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Karen, what about this story uh, stood out to you? Uh, yeah, I'd probably echo what we've been talking about so far. Uh, definitely hit chapter three, and it was quite a shocking transition which i think was the intention i'd found up to that point the colors were kind of um a little hard to place i thought it maybe it'd be watercolor and and i couldn't figure out that it would be digital in the early 80s so that's a insightful it makes sense now um but yeah um up until that point it was a little some of the inks were a little bit strange, like especially uh, Kitty Pride, just uh, some unflattering angles and so on. <laughs> Not that everyone has to look super photogenic in a comic or a superhero comic, but just kind of some weird faces and stuff. So um, I think the the use of color certainly like kind of puts the art on the place it should be considering like the seriousness of the story rather than just it's just kind of like some of the panels you can tell they're not as as precise as others or or they're not putting as much thought into the action panels as some of the classic um drafts people but uh i wonder yeah. karen just to jump in on that just because i'm flipping sure. through it i almost wonder if it's because at the time 
did they even know that it was going to be blown up as big as as this issue was? Like, well, that's the thing. Usually, what we talked about before in previous episodes, that it's usually shrunk down, right, so that you can obscure some of the, um, yeah, not mistakes, but kind of more rushed or unimportant scenes that doesn't create as much of a jarring effect for the reader. So that could yeah. be quite possible when it's reprinted and and reissued and shared in that way it's like okay now we're really gonna see the oh okay well maybe some of the details aren't quite as as uh precise as we remember but uh, mm. yeah i don't know um so stephanie you 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 kind of made it clear in the start there how that first scene with the kids had impacted do you want to elaborate on that or is there something else about the story uh, that stood out to you that you'd like to speak to well, that, that was the B, if I had to pick it, the one most impactful scene, I would say it's yeah. that opening scene because like you actually see, basically you see children get murdered and lynched, right? Like they were like hung up on swings so their school friends can see them the next day. Like how screwed up is that? <laughs> like, <laughs> seriously. And um, and like, like I said, because my pre- notions of x-men before that was the more you know the monthly periodical which is a little more gentle so that this was really like it's like whoa <laughs> i did not see this coming at all you know even though like i had read other things um i would say uh, i bookmarked it here so i can hold it up to the camera this particular panel and i think it's the most famous panel from the book right but i just love it so much is when striker is pointing at nightcrawler and asking if he's if you would consider him human, basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I just I love that panel so much. There's no background. There's it's, it's so simplistic. And sorry, but, can, can you hold it up again? And I'll read it out loud so so folks know. So we got okay. we have Reverend Stryker pointing at Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler, of course, being the blue, um, elven-eared uh, teleporting mutant, and he's going human. You dare call that thing human? And yes, it is a it is a powerful image, um, very much. And I guess speaks to maybe, maybe that's an excellent segue um, into going into how does this story help you reflect on um, on social issues? And, and once again, feel free to to go to be specific to the story and get into the issue or what have you. Um, I'm going to well here we'll we'll throw it right at you again, Stephanie. Want to you want to jump onto this? Uh, so just put me right back into it. <laughs> Why not? Or, or you can... sure. um, I don't know if this single story would say, well, first of all, the, the first thing was like, um, just X-Men had always been about the bigotry story to me. Right. Um, so, um, so this kind of added to that narrative as opposed to like, um, it's something that, that uh, I would jump upon because of this, but more of a, like growing up, I, I, I don't know if it's just the way I grew up or all the comics I read, but I would say I have a very super strong sense of uh, social justice and um, things like like racism and bigotry, uh, you know, uh, transphobia, homophobia, um, misogyny, all those things were were very, very much like things I was like actively like battling against since I could remember, to be honest, like even in school and stuff like that. Those are other stories we can tell another day. Um, yeah. <laughs> do you feel like a comic like this or we can even go more general do you feel like x-men comics or gave you that sense of social justice i think that's an interesting thing to to, to think, think about i think they they helped with it for sure mm -hmm. right they give you 
a really good analogy where you can pull things like like you know like you see, you see this stuff happen on tv and the news you hear about you know like uh, conflicts in different countries or protests in our own backyard and um and now that now that um you you, you know now that you can i can like i read those growing up and i own and i've kind of developed a really strong sense of what's right and what's wrong kind of thing from it and then i like and you're seeing all this bigotry and stuff like that and, and then you're like, don't these people ever learn from reading X-Men? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's what I want to know. Why not? Well, yeah. Yeah, well, I just, I, the reason, I, I often wonder that about myself. Like, did I, did superheroes uh, help give me a social conscience? Or do I, did I, uh, was I drawn to superheroes because I had a social conscience? Or I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, um, I don't know, to be honest. Yeah. But, um, something, something, I'll add this real quick. On yeah. the reread, though, Something that this book touched on that I didn't really think about the last time I read it um, was definitely the radicalization. Like we called it brainwashing mm -hmm. of, of Professor Xavier, but but, but uh, when I reread it, I'm like, holy crap, this is kind of what's happening today. Oh yeah. So on a mass interesting. scale. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, Karen, uh, how does this story help you reflect on social issues? Uh, yeah, just what Stephanie was saying. It, uh, I couldn't help but think of um, kind of our various polarized groups today, whether it's, you know, kind of, well, unfortunately, here in Alberta, we have a lot of anti-maskers, which is a, a strange uh, permutation of, of like some extreme ideologies put into something that most of us probably don't understand. Like, why would you object to something that's so simple and seems innocuous? But uh, yeah, it's that how you can kind of whip someone up or groups of people up into a frenzy within, you know, um, seemingly a few months these days. And then we certainly saw that in the Trump era, which are fortunately is coming to its close, but I don't think America is going to be the same after that. It's going to take a lot of time to like switch switch tracks again to something that's a little bit more i don't know hopeful uh but yeah so it's certainly a lot of these social issues we can't say that a lot of them have necessarily gotten better 30 years on or that we can't relate to them um some of the i think we alluded to this in some of our notes and earlier discussion but some of it's a, it is still a little clunky and doesn't read super well uh in this day and age where you're getting more sensitive portrayals of superheroes like i'm thinking of the tv hbo version of watchmen where they're very specific and deliberate about how they include race and i think that is a much uh more powerful contemporary example than you know even the original watchmen or this book but that's just you know whatever times have changed and we've learned a bit more we can apply to our media so thanks um Okay, we're gonna to jump to, uh, well here, how about uh, Ian, uh, you come with a lot of knowledge of this book. Uh, so um, uh, just a little bit. So why don't you share, uh, you know, how did this story help you reflect on social issues and maybe go into the segue uh, of what you were talking about with me earlier uh, before the conversation about uh, just how Chris Claremont uh, approached race and uh, sexual um, identity in his book, in his work. Um, well, Kind of touch on one major thing. So I'm not, I know it's been pointed out that Mike Pence looks exactly like Stryker many, many times. 
Where is that but, pointed out? <laughs> but, um, I'm sure it's a meme somewhere. Because this is the first time. The okay. internet. <laughs> to me. Okay. But um, yeah. yeah, it's kind of is there unsettling. there a fly on Stryker's head? Sorry. Go on. <laughs> I mean, if you don't mind, I'm going to read like a small part of the in, of the introduction in that Claremont wrote. Yeah. Because you could literally take this paragraph and you could take uh, any of the uh, Reagan, for example, mentioned here, and basically put it in Trump, and it doesn't change anything. Um, this is from so Claremont wrote the intro, and you can tell it's a Claremont intro because it is two walls of text. Hmm. Uh, don't worry. He says, "So here we are in the early '80s. Ronald Reagan is president, and a wave of creative conservatism is sweeping the nation. Pitches a backlash from the heartland to the unpatriotic and hedonistic attitudes and mores of the '60s and '70s." Uh, according to them, the country was returning to bedrock traditional values and beliefs, both political and moral, leading that charge and by extension the avalanche of criticism of the prevalent lefty New York slash LA lifestyles were a coterie of TV evangelists, trumpeting their born-again fundamentalist version of the Bible across the naturalist airwaves. There were the long-established ministries of Billy Graham, Oral Roberts, and Robert Schuller, plus her newer counterparts such as Pat Robertson, The 700 Club, Jerry Falwell, The Moral Majority, Jimmy Swaggart, and Jimmy and Tammy Faye Backer, The PTL Club, and among many others. This was basically his response. And when you, in that paragraph, it's like, oh, so nothing has changed. Like, it, we, like we've literally recycling what happened before because now you have this idiot president basically blaming everything on Obama because... He doesn't have the basic competence to run a country, and thank God he's not going to be part of it soon. Um, so I think it's interesting how the the influence behind that book is still influencing things now because we've kind of gone in a loop in the la- with this last presidency. Um, so enough about that because I can rant about Trump. I can rant about Trump all day. Um, the thing that I really appreciate both here. And even more so, actually, in X Men, in the Claremont's overall run, is um, Storm. Storm is one of the best X Men characters, best comic characters in general. And they reference this um, briefly in there that Storm was actually, and you reference this also in your initial uh, letter that you sent to all of us that um, Storm would become the leader of the X Men under Claremont's tenure. And not only defeating Cyclops for the position of leadership, but he should be the leader for quite a long time. And he basically developed, while he didn't create the character, he kind of developed the character into one of the strongest, um, not only uh, female, but also black comic book characters in the entire medium. And a lot of people have talked about that, but the thing that more and more, more and more people are slowly talking about now is the, um, is the queer coding that he would write into comics because at the time during uh, the comic code era, the publishers would just not let you talk about the fact that there are characters who are gay for the longest time. And um, anyone who reads Claremont's run specifically reading about mystique and destiny, it is very clear that they are both that they are not only are they gay, but they're basically, they're basically the parents of rogue. You know, they are her, her, her mother's. And um, it's not only that, but recently, of course, they finally made Shadowcat canonically bisexual. 
But if you go back and read any of that, it's like, yes, his character and probably Ayana were both were like bisexual right from the get go, which is that like he couldn't talk about it. Um, I do find it interesting because in a recent interview, he talked about how the they asked him about that. And he said, oh, they totally were. And they are in my mind. They always have been. It's just that I could never put that on paper. And I think that's interesting that like more than 40 years ago, uh, Claremont was bringing up, was talking about things or bringing up subjects that even now it seems like, especially certain areas of YouTube, when it comes to comics, like flip out and assume that there's no political, no politics in comic books and no messages or anything like that or diversity. Um, but yeah, it's been there for a while. I think it's kind of interesting that he was very much at the forefront of it. I, I don't know much about Claremont other than like having loved his X-Men writing. Do you know if there was anything in his background that made him maybe a, a step ahead of other people? Like uh, yeah. as far as compared to other writers? Um, his mother was one of the first um, female Air Force pilots. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. I think she, um, she, I believe, I remember even in recent years, she still flies. And she's in her... Like um, she she flew up until I think the nineties, and um, she is a, from a very elite group of pilots. He he grew up in England. He was raised around the Air Force um, in England. And if you look at any female character he writes, specifically uh, Carol Danvers. Well, yeah, I remember there was a Rogue Carol Danvers issue of X Men. I think around one sixty three. Am I getting it right? Yeah, but um, I love that, that was the X Men annual number ten. Oh, okay, but prior to that, he wrote. Like Gene Cullen wrote the first couple issues of Captain Marvel, but he took over just a couple issues after, or, or Miss Marvel at the time. And he completely redid the character, made her that much stronger. And according to him, um, she is heavily influenced by his mother. Right. As are, a lot of the, as are the bulk of the female and pretty much all the female characters that he writes. That is interesting. I'm going to watch Captain Marvel with my daughter much differently next time. Um, Jason. Um, do you want to, um, uh, tell us, is, is there anything more we can, we can explore around the social issues of, of, uh, of X-Men God Loves Man Kills? Well, like, yeah, so this was like, I, I, there, there's been a, like a sort of a, a, a subtext of critique as I've been talking about this book, uh, just cause I, I haven't, like, I found it punky when I reread it. And yeah. even when I, when I bought it at that wee book in, I was like, oh yeah, I, I, I like the art and, and the, um, you know, the overall story is kind of interesting, but but I didn't like, I didn't buy it. Uh, if that makes sense in terms of like a, uh, like a, um, a good, a good uh, sort of psychologically uh, realistic depiction of these, of these sort of values, like striker feels like a, a clear, uh, almost like a parody of what evangelicalism feels like sometimes. Um, uh, like his ability to quote like multiple paragraphs of the Bible, almost as dialogue, like we're just, felt so broad to me. Um, the reason I say all of this is that even though, even though I didn't buy the story, even as much as I, I would buy some of Claremont's later work, like his uh, Dark Phoenix saga, to me, like I, I, I buy those characters more than I bought them here. Um, the reason I mention this is because I think there's, I, I have the benefit of being a demographic that has very rarely felt any persecution whatsoever. Which means that I wonder if my I have I have this luxury of not identifying with the persecution. Right. Which means then that I I'm my, my critique is harsher, if that makes sense. 
Um, uh, All right. Anyone want to uh, respond to that? All right. Um, well, yeah, well, that's, yeah. It's, I mean, I struggle with similar um, um, issues, I, I guess. What I find interesting when I think about this, especially when I think about kind of religious intolerance and I even have was following some of the threads because uh, Stephanie started some threads that were having people talk about the book and <laughs> and, um, and and that's actually how we got we got Ian to come in and 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 certainly some people view the book and when, even when they when they discuss with uh, you know say religious intolerance they get into race and, and things like that yet for me now as as a modern day um, uh, you know teacher junior high teacher. Uh, for me, the 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 um, the concern often, especially in Alberta, once again with with kind of some of the uh, the, the the struggles with bringing in uh, gay straight alliances in schools and, and and the resistance to that and 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 I guess for me, I, I view religious intolerance, especially in modern day, uh, as 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 much as anything an LGBTQ uh, concern, and um, particularly once again in Alberta, this this movement to get um conversion therapy uh outlawed and 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 things like that and that goes back to what i saw charles x uh exiver going through uh you know when he when he was in the isolation tank was this 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 attempt at 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 brainwashing and um and i think it was very interesting just just hearing um stephanie talking about kind of you know the, the you know this notion of 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 radicalization and and how we can use these hero tropes uh to explore that i think is very interesting and and, and is is in the in this uh in this story um okay anyone else want to add on before we get into some uh some uh i want to ask a bigger broader question around the x-men um anyone want to tap on it touch uh comment any more on x-men god loves man kills before we go a little broader I'd like to actually bring up one more thing, yeah, if that's okay. For sure. Because I know one of the more infamous, infamous moments in the story is um, with Kitty Pride and C.B. Hunter. Is her, that the dance uh, teacher? Instructor. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's a scene where she basically says, where uh, Kitty Pride gets called a mutie by another student. Mm-hmm. And she's angry. She's almost, she almost physically attacks him and causes us to stop her. And then she says, oh, it's just a word. And um, then she basically says to CB Hunter, well, what if someone called you an N-word lover? Uh, what would that, would that be just a word? Would that be okay? Mm-hmm. And you could tell that she's in this fit of rage, fit of anger. And I think it's, it's a really interesting thing because obviously there's a controversy about it. People often point to it as one of the things that might be more dated or overtly explicit throughout the book. Yeah. And it, even though it's really harsh, it does make for a really it kind of pushes what you know Stephanie was talking about at the beginning of the story. And I, even though it's something that would never be done today, and in many ways, I think while it's the way it could have been approached would be more subtle, I like the fact that Claremont at the same time was willing to basically be like, this is not a standard comic book. I can actually point out this hard, kind of harsh reality and further along that metaphor. But the thing that I do appreciate about it, reading it, rereading again is the fact that Colossus basically says, yeah, she was, she was angry. She was extremely angry. And I like the fact that they actually do have a discussion about it and the, and they'll use the, and basically her using that term. Yeah. Um, 
And that scene always, that scene really does strike me because I know that people are very much hot and cold on that scene. And um, I was just going to mention one of the things that's regarding the character of Anne, a character that not a lot of people think about, who's basically the uh, the right hand the right hand woman of um, of Stryker, and who's revealed to be mutant and murdered by Stryker. So what happened with her and Stryker? Remember, she's revealed to be a mutant near the end of the story. Oh, okay. And Stryker yeah, yeah. shoves her off the tower and breaks her neck, and. Um, I think it's very interesting that if you rereading that story, that she is very, even though she's a villain, Claremont approaches her in the same way that he approaches characters like Storm, like Carol Danvers. And you see a lot of her character development throughout the series, uh, throughout that one storyline. Um, and then just the last thing that stands out to me, and then I'll shut up, I promise, um, is regarding Nightcrawler, where he saves her from the, from the, from the vehicle that's going to be crushed. And says to her along the lines of, "I'm sorry to prevent the martyrdom that you always, that you also clearly also clearly seek," and he teleports her out of the car. And I always thought that was a really interesting moment because with Nightcrawler, especially with his religious background, that the way he is, his ethics, his morals, and his religious views, he's like, "No, I'm going to prevent this from happening," and saves her life. With a clever comment, the way well, of Kirk course he's Nightcrawler. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, great. Well, uh, excellent thoughts, uh, everyone. Um, Okay, I just want to hear, who do you think are the most radical X-Men? Okay, so um, I'm going to show this at, uh, I'm going to see what Karen has to say. Oh, all right. Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, probably Magneto, just because his view is so much different than the rest of the X-Men and it's a little bit more nuanced and developed. And I also found specifically reading God Loves Man Kills, we've kind of been saying like there's always a punchline or clever joke or something. And like that's kind of my has long been my issue with a lot of Marvel characters is they're just I all seemed like the same character where they're just waiting for like uh you know to come in with a clever retort or whatever so I guess Magneto would be more the the straight man he's not joking around very often but I also find like when he shows up it's like okay I'm gonna listen to what he's going to say because it's going to be different than the rest of them think and that's not to say that he'll he'll be right or he'll be saying something that I agree with but at least it kind of shakes up the story and that's his purpose in the whole franchise and um, same with the movies and all the uh, standalone graphic novels I've read it's just like okay now we're now the plot's going and now um, we're going to get some interesting ideas going just because right. uh, it's different. So. He's not messing around he wants to change No. Alright. All right. His way but yeah. Steph- Stephanie to you who is the most Radical X-Men. Um, I'm going to give a wishy-washy answer because I think <laughs> an excellent answer, first of all. Okay. And that a lot of it has to do with this because he, he is the contrast to Professor X, right? Professor X is trying very hard to become accepted and a part of society where Magneto represents the opposite, where they're fighting society instead of trying to work with society. Within, within its boundaries sort of thing because he, he always introduces all these um, but like Karen said actually like all these brand new ideas and uh, perspective that you don't usually see um, but at this at the same time him and Professor X still have this 
a similar goal, right, is the acceptance of mutants in the long run. It's very different ways to approach it. Uh, and then my other choice is going to be Storm. Right. And one thing I, the one story of Storms that really, really stands out is when she became leader of the, the Morlocks, Morlocks underground. Yeah. She had like, basically she had to do a knife battle. And um, I think that was right around the time she got the, she got the Mohawk right after that, was it? I forget. It was right around then. It was all around the same time. Yeah. And, yeah, that yeah. was, yeah. But, those, yeah. but I would, I would put Storm up there because she's kind of one of those, like, I almost feel like, like they, 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 they often tease us with like Storm. She's like definitely a main character and she's, she's very much been somewhat leadership and she has been leader. She's, you know, knife fight to be a leader, things like that. But at the same time, I always feel like there's still a whole bunch of unexplored things you can do with Storm that we haven't seen yet. That's always been my feeling about Storm is that if, she, if, she, if you give her, if, if we just give her like that actual like spotlight forefront, you know, and then, and then I think I almost feel like she is the one who can bring in all the new ideas that we don't have yet with the X-Men. Yeah, well, and I mean, for me, uh, Storm was a big one for me, and and jumping onto what you're saying, what Ian was talking about earlier, during that Claremont run, she was written so well, and I don't know if they've done as good a job with her at all. Um, I don't know if they built on that, and I mean, I know for a while she married Black Panther, and I'm not sure what that was about, but um, but yeah, back when she had the leather vest and the Mohawk, and I'll confess that is why I started to buy X Men. I bought X Men when her and Cyclops fought and she won without powers. And for me, that was profound because X-Men was all about powers. And here she was being a leader without powers. So there was something very deep, I think. And then it was interesting because her winning against the Morlocks, which was against Callisto, I think, was that her name? Um, um, once again, an another fight. She was just, she was such a badass uh, that back then, but, but standing up for so much. Um, uh, Jason. Who do you think is the most radical X-Men? Uh, it's like I've been racking my brain. I'm like, oh, God, I'm, eventually this question is going to come to me, and I, mm -hmm. I don't know what an answer is. It, part of the problem is, is that, like, I mean, the, the, the comics nerd part of my brain is like, okay, am I making this only people who are, you know, sort of officially members of the X-Men? And if so, part of the problem is, is that, like, their extremity – is almost like part of their, like, they have to, like, get rid of their extremity to join the X-Men. So it's like they all get kind of pacified by joining. Um, part so then of someone the, else, someone that's been in the comic. Oh, totally. Yeah, no, and that's, and that, that's kind of where I went. So I, I've got two answers. Awesome. My first answer is Grant Morrison's character, or I think he oh, created yeah. the character, Quentin Quire. Oh, yeah. Uh, for the new X-Men. Yeah. When he, was, when he was running that. Because that was just, like, I think the first time we'd seen, like, uh, postmodernist like hyper ironic uh um critique of the x-men idealism um it wasn't it wasn't about like he wasn't even really like engaging with the homo sapien homo superior debate it was just like it was like th th this was like the x-men debate for the meme generation is what it felt like it was the start of um so that he, that's what felt the most extreme but also my second answer is is that like honestly i think professor x is the most like uh, hardcore version of the X-Men because there's there's a few stories where basically he just gets sick of it and decides to go like more Magneto than Magneto. 
you know, oh, onslaught's uh, the most radical X Men. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, well, you know, like it's it's interesting, but like I was actually more interested in onslaught that storyline back in the day when I read it as a kid, when it was about when it felt like it was about him just having had enough. Yeah, you know. Oh well, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it, it is powerful when Professor X uh, goes rogue, so to speak, yeah. or what have you, um, and has had enough. <laughs> All right, Ian, I want to hear from you. Who um, is the most radical X-Men? I know that sounds really weird, and no one will really... I don't know if a lot of people, a lot of listeners will necessarily understand it unless I explain it, and that's Cyclops. Explain it. <laughs> okay, here's the thing about Cyclops. We see people who, like, people who are maybe no X-Men specifically through movies, TV, they see him as just, like, the Boy Scout, the leader the one who basically does whatever Xavier says. And they can't be more wrong because Cyclops, he's one of the, he's very much a, for someone who seemingly has so many things that he doesn't seem to understand, at least from a, on a social level. Um, he also is the one person who will work for Xavier, who will lead the X-Men. But there's a certain point where him as a leader, he realizes he can realize when something is wrong. Perfect example being the end of God loves man kills when he basically calls out Xavier for wanting to join Magneto, for even attempting the idea of joining Magneto. Mm -hmm. And he basically tells him, Every, you take, you're taking everything you stand for, everything you taught us, and you're throwing all that away. And I thought that was a really, I mean, it's, a, it's more of a summarization of what he said, but it's a really interesting moment. And in many ways, it kind of foreshadows uh, what Cyclops would become, especially around Messiah Complex and Avengers versus X-Men. Because Cyclops very much cares about mutant, about mutants. He cares about mutants and humans, but at the same time, he's a leader. And he will basically, unfortunately, as he became more and more unhinged in Messiah Complex, he realized that he would not let nothing stand in his way as a leader. And it is interesting that this in many ways foreshadows what would be the eventual death of Xavier when Cyclops killed him. Because for him, in his mind, Xavier was basically letting the Avengers take away hope, basically potentially leading up to another end of the mutants, and he basically takes into his own hands and kills Xavier. And Sounds very biblical uh, for uh, you know a series that takes on religious intolerance. I'm just <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, well described. Anything else you want to add there, Ian? Um, there's actually um, I haven't. Oh, the, the other the other character I can think of would actually be a danger, the uh, danger room when they actually gain sentience. And Is that during uh, the Ross Whedon run? Yep. It was yep. During, and they actually recently brought danger into the um, House of X, Power of X run, who actually, and she actually played a prominent role in Ten of Swords. Because, of course, you find out that Xavier basically found this actual life form and used the, then used the technology for the sentient artificial life form to create the danger room. Oh. And so when it starts killing people, it's because it's basically been trapped by Professor Xavier and shows a lot of that moral gray that kind of ties in not only to God Loves Man Kills, but also the events I mentioned in Avenger vs. X-Men. And the thing that's so interesting is that with Danger, eventually she does join the rest of the mutants on Krakoa, even with that, um, even with that anger. But it's like the most it's one of those villains where I'm like, oh, okay, 
yeah, you killed people, but you did it because you were basically forced to be a prisoner and used as a virtual reality toy by some bald guy against your own will. And that's always been why they, I feel like those would actually be two of the most radical X-Men characters. Okay, well, there we go. We got some. I'm just going to share. Uh, maybe you guys all stepped off of this one because you saw it in my notes, but um, Bishop, in my mind, is the most radical X-Men because <laughs> he traveled back in time to try to change the world. Like, you know, and I don't think that's in the Bible. Is there time travel in the Bible? No. So this is going beyond that. <laughs> and um, and Bishop, all you uh, cartoon fans, Karen, you probably remember Bishop. Uh, um, he was he was around. I don't have the deep lore that we're we're diving into here. But don't worry, when the Green Lantern episode comes up, you'll, oh, yeah. you'll hear from me on we're, that we're, one. But. We're getting there. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to share that because when I was thinking about world changing, you know, there's and that goes back to actually another Claremont story, Days of Future Past, where it's Kitty Pride who's sent back in time um, to change the planet, and um, and then Wolverine in the movie due to some. Uh, debatable rewrites um okay well folks i think we had an awesome um x-mini conversation here um this was fantastic uh before we wrap up um i just want to hear was there anyone want to share um what they're up to uh these days what, what they have going on so um ian would you like to share what, what you got coming up in your podcast uh well we just did a we actually just did a podcast interview with um brett booth who's going to be we're going to be working on a fill-in arc on House of X. I'm uh, not House of X. I'm so sorry. On uh, X-Men with Jonathan Hickman. Uh, oh, we just wow. did an interview with him, and he's going to be also doing um, X-Men Legends, which basically brings back Claremont, Simonson, Peter David, and everyone to kind of wrap up the stories they never got to finish back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've got an upcoming... We're going to be coming doing an upcoming show with the writers and directors of Scream 5, and we're going to be doing a screen retrospective with them and possibly one of the actors from the movie to talk about the franchise as a whole. Okay. Well, thank you. And that's uh, the Circuit 42 uh, podcast, everyone. Yep. Uh, Circuit um, 42 on... Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, that's okay. All good. Uh, I was just on uh, Spotify, iTunes, and iHeartRadio. Oh, there we go. Okay, Stephanie? Um, to figure out which ones I can talk about. We'll just keep um foam armory my cosplay foam armor website or business is uh we are quickly approaching our first year anniversary so uh christmas is coming now's the time to order if you want to get some foam chain mail that's foamarmory.com and um and then we'll probably do something pretty big for the for the first anniversary which uh, we started the day after Adam Savage featured us on the Tested podcast, so that's end of January. But we'll probably do something all month in thinking. Okay, cool. Jason? Uh, working away on the theater stuff. Uh, nothing new to report yet, but uh, I am doing a D&D, uh, live D&D game uh, on uh, Twitch and YouTube, the D20 Initiative, and we're doing that next Monday. Uh, uh for as a christmas special and doing uh so a one-shot christmas holiday special for dnd all right thank you and karen yeah i got a couple different things this month um i was a guest on kino lefter which is a leftist film review kind of summary culture podcast uh uh, Evan from Kino Lefter is doing a James Bond series. So it's not all of the movies, but it's all the 
Brosnan and Craig movies, so the last eight movies, um, I am on a bonus episode reviewing Die Another Day, which we concluded is the worst James Bond movie, but of course <laughs> fun to listen to as we kind of tear it apart. So that's, uh, that's like I said, a bonus episode for uh, Patreon subscribers, but there are um, episodes in the series in the general feed, so I'd encourage you to check them out. I've enjoyed listening to all the of the ones that have come out so far. And there's some other uh, kind of prominent guests from kind of the left podcast community, like Adam Johnson from Citation Sneedon. So it's very flattering to be among those folks. And uh, shifting gears a bit, um, I have a poster coming out with um, Graphic History Collective. Uh, it's oh. going to be very timely themed. It should be out uh, this week or uh, by the time everybody's listening to this. Um, so that's in you can just Google Graphic History Collective and they have books, uh, educational posters. So uh, I, I did one before on Cape Breton coal mines, but this one is uh, more Western Canada. So that was a great opportunity to do some historical research and illustration. So mm. congrats. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. <laughs> Pretty fun. All right. Did I, okay. Jason, did I get you? Yep. All right. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> it's been a long Monday. All right. Um, well, thanks so much, everyone. Um, once again, uh, this podcast was brought to you by Change Agents from Renegades Arts Enter Entertainment, coming out exclusively on Comicsology in January. Fight the power, be the difference. Tune in next episode, where we'll be discussing the DC Comics collection, President Luther. Although created over 20 years ago, it still feels, for many reasons, very timely. Um, that's all for tonight, everyone. Uh, it should be a great conversation next time. I want to thank Ian from Circuit 42 for joining us. And uh, you'll see the rest of us all, or hear the rest of us all, um, at, at our next episode. Take care, everybody. Bye. 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 Bye.